Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. We are in the uh, midst of a verse-by-verse study through the book of John. Uh, You can turn with me in your Bibles. We've made it to chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 1. When we left off last week, Jesus was in the region of the Galilee and teaching in Capernaum in the synagogue there to a very large crowd of curious listeners who wanted him to whip up another meal. You remember a few weeks back, he had uh, taken a a little boy's lunch and fed 5,000 men. That didn't count the women and the children that might have been in attendance that day. But he took it and he multiplied it, and this crowd wanted him to do this again. It was becoming, uh, as we said, kind of like a circus for them. They just wanted to see what Jesus was going to do next. But Jesus knew what was in the, the crowd's hearts, and he gave them a message that they would never forget there in Capernaum as they followed him. He told them that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they would have no salvation And that hit them. He was speaking, of course, metaphorically, referring to receiving him as their source of spiritual sustenance, like they they would uh, as if they ate physical food to feed their body. They would have to drink of his blood that he would shed on the cross. They would have to intake it and intake the forgiveness that went with it. But the crowd of peripheral disciples were largely turned off by this analogy And Scripture tells us they would follow him no more. That was it. It was getting close to the time of the Feast of Tabernacles now, the holidays when the Jews would uh, build outdoor makeshift tents out of branches and cloth and camp outside for seven days uh, to uh, kind of as a reminder of what their ancestors had gone through in the days of Moses and how God had provided everything they needed as they traipsed across the desert. Traipsed is uh, a Greek word for uh, walked briskly. Um, they, their shoes never wore out. Uh, God gave them manna to eat every morning. He gave them water to drink. Uh, they didn't go without any need And in this week-long celebratory feast to commemorate the 40 years of God's provision to the people, while they traveled through the wilderness on foot, they celebrated God's goodness to them. And they were reminded that everything they need to exist comes from God. It's a good reminder for us today to remember that the things we have, the house we live in, the food we eat, the job we have, the finances... You can just go on and on and on. They're from God. They are a gift to you and to me and to steward. We are to steward them wisely. This feast drew hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps a million, young and old, back to Jerusalem to partake in the celebration. The temple area was adorned with these gigantic candles, and they would light these these candles that, that went around the temple As a reminder of God's fire by night, he would light the encampment for the people. And this reminded him that even that was taken. They had a nightlight out in the wilderness. Additionally, the priests would go down to the the pool of Siloam 
there in Jerusalem and draw water from it in these large water pots that, that contained anywhere from 25 to 40 gallons of water, depending on which pot they grabbed. And all the priests, and there were many of them, would go down to the pool of Siloam and they would fill these pots and then they would hike back up to the Temple Mount and they would spill them out at the base of the altar all at once and water would just flood out towards the people. And it was a reminder that God gave them water to drink. He took care of every need that they would have. And while this was a huge celebration for the people, for Jesus, it was a time of great contention due to the fact that the Pharisees were seeking to kill him. Since the day he healed the paralytic man back in chapter 5 that we read several weeks ago, when he healed them on the Sabbath, they wanted to kill him. And it says from then on, they sought for the right moment to arrest him and kill him. Jesus was better off staying in Capernaum, in the land of Galilee out there. However, he was required by Jewish law to attend this feast. And so the Jewish authorities the Pharisees knew that he would have to come to Jerusalem, and they put out the word, find Jesus. We want to kill him. And of course, Jesus would fulfill the law that was required of him, so he had to go to these festivities, but it would be filled with danger and intrigue that rolled out like a three-part play, and I've called it the three-part play of the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's part one. Before the feast, we see the doubting brothers. So in the first act, we see the doubting brothers. Let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe him. Do you hear the sarcasm in their voices there? If you're Messiah, just go up to Jerusalem. Just do these things. And maybe you'll get some of your followers back that you drove away. It sounds a lot like Satan's temptation out in the wilderness to me. Go up to Jerusalem. Just go ahead and do that. I'm sure they'll make you Messiah. I find it curious that Jesus' half-brothers, men who were born of natural means between Joseph and Mary after Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit and bore Jesus, they never picked up on any of Jesus' attributes or character traits during their growing up years in Nazareth village. They, they aren't even aware that he has any of those traits. They had witnessed his perfect qualities, and yet they did not believe in him as the long-awaited Messiah. Sinners from far and wide confessed Jesus as Lord, fishermen, tax collectors, politicians, criminals, recognized his deity, but his own brothers refused to acknowledge the evidence before them. In fact, they mocked him openly, suggesting that if he wanted some more followers to replace the ones he'd lost, he should go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. They knew what that meant. They knew the Jewish authorities were seeking to kill him. 
Surely Jesus would gain an army of followers if he went, they said. Were they teasing him because they knew his life had been threatened? Probably. But Jesus would not cave in to their cajoling. His response, by the way, was prophesied by King David over 800 years before it took place back in Psalm 69, 8, when he wrote this. David knew about heartache and family that would turn on him. And in this, as he wrote, he prophesied this very moment that Jesus experienced. Verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Why did he call him them his mother's children? Because he couldn't say my father's children. Jesus' father is, is the heavenly father. And so he decided to say, my mother's children, speaking of his brothers. After his resurrection and at Pentecost, we see all four of Jesus' Jesus's brothers and that they had confessed him as their Savior. They just took longer to realize. Jesus had sisters, by the way, too, but we're not told how many or, or any of their names. Of course, Jesus' half-brother, James, would eventually write the book of James, and he died as a martyr uh, for refusing to deny that Jesus was God's son. Let's continue, verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, he's going to answer his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Jesus said, you can go anytime you want. Uh, Jesus was referring, he had a different purpose and passion. The world cannot hate you, But it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, so he stayed behind. But when his brothers had gone up, it's about a three-day walk, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Jesus used wisdom here, knowing that his time had not yet come to die. So he attended it incognito, at least in the beginning. So part one, before the feast, we see the doubting brothers. And here's part two, scene two. During the feast, we see the three quarreling groups. The three quarreling groups. There are three groups very different from each other and yet very similar. The people attending the festival were broken into these three major groups. Here's group one, the local leaders, the local leaders. Group one consisted of the religious elites like the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And while their theology varied greatly between themselves, they became united in their desire to kill Jesus, for none of them wanted to lose the power base that they had created and amassed over the people. They liked being in power, and they weren't going to have Jesus ruin it for them. Verse 11, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? The Pharisees want to get their hands on him. 
That leads us to group number two that are at the feast. The second group, the traveling Jews, the traveling Jews. These were Jews who had arrived into Jerusalem from all over, both inside and outside of Israel. If you were a converted Jew, perhaps living in Greece somewhere, you would try to go back to this feast every year and attend it. So they were foreigners all over, Jewish converts that had come back for the feast. And these worshipers would be far less influenced by these local powerful Pharisees, not having been under their thumb directly. They were coming from the outside into the inside. Verse 12, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him, Jesus. Some said, he is good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for the fear of the Jews. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, so we're about three, four days into the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters? More succinctly, how does he know theology so masterfully, having never studied uh, because he's the author of all theology and truth. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but, he, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered him and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? You remember, these are the people from the outside. They haven't gotten, you know, the word yet. They, they haven't gotten the backstory yet. They're just arriving in town and listening to Jesus' teaching, and they're going, well, who wants to kill you? Are you crazy? Group two had come from all over and were not caught up on who Jesus was yet from group one, the religious leaders that thought of him as a false teacher. From just hearing Jesus teaching, they liked him for the most part, many did, and most couldn't figure out why anyone would want to kill him. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work. He's referring to the paralytic, the miracle of healing, the paralytic. I did one work, and you all marveled. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He's saying, yeah, you made a law and you kept it on the Sabbath. Circumcision was to be done on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, I healed a man who hadn't walked in decades and you have a problem with what I did? Judge with righteous judgment, he says. This brings us to the final group at the festival, group three, the local yokels. The word yokel is Greek for homeboys. 
These are the guys that grew up in Jerusalem. These are the, the neighborhood guys that grew up under the Pharisees. They're very respectful to the Pharisees because they're very powerful. They feared the Pharisees. So they're going to be more likely to mimic whatever the Pharisees tell them to believe. Verse 25, now some of them from, from Jerusalem, these are the locals, said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Jesus is up teaching in the temple. Isn't this the guy that they want to kill, and yet he's, he's up there? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Have they changed their mind? Do they think he's Messiah? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. When the Messiah comes, no one's going to know where. This, that, that was their problem. The problem was that the Pharisees taught that when Messiah come, it would come, no one would know who he was or where he came from. He would just, boom, magically, I guess, appear. No one would know where he was from. But we know where Jesus is from, they said. No one would know where the, the true Messiah was from. They knew that his family came out of the Galilee region for sure. Many of them would have known that he came from the city of Nazareth in the middle of Galilee. This is why Jesus had to do miracles in order to prove himself as the rightful Messiah from God himself. So he was doing miracles, so they would have to stand back and go, wait a minute, this is different. Then Jesus cried out, verse 28, as he taught in the temple, he did this loudly saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. He's, I think there's sarcasm here when he says this. <laughs> you know me and where I'm from? And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Now this would have set them off. Because can you imagine the, the chosen people of Israel? And Jesus says, you don't even know my father. You don't know where I come from. You don't even know the one I sent, who sent me. Verse 29, but I know him. Here it is again, for I am. Here's that word that would just freak them out. I am, another claim of deity by Jesus. I'm the self-sustaining God. I am from him, and he sent me. So this further divided the crowd. Some wanted to, gra to grab Jesus and stone him on the spot, probably the local yokels, mostly. But many in the crowd, probably the travelers that had come from outside, placed their faith in Jesus. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His father wouldn't let them. Take him. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this or these which this man has done? Guys, what are we waiting for? I mean, look, he, look what he's done. He's healed at this point perhaps hundreds in Jerusalem. We know about the paralytic, but there, after the paralytic, it says Jesus remained on and healed for several days. What are we waiting for? If you believe the Messiah will come, will he do more than, than Jesus has already done? He's got to be the Messiah. So they believed in him. 
Many were able to see the false teachings of the Pharisees and scribes and see that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Even Nicodemus had said to Jesus, John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Even Nicodemus, perhaps the the number one teacher in Israel, acknowledged you've got to be from God. No one could do these things unless God sent them. So that brings us back to a question that I have asked several times during our study. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Preconceived ideas and the opinions of others are poor scales on which to judge the most important question that you will ever answer. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Your answer will determine your eternal destiny after this life is over. Either way you choose, investigate the facts for yourselves because what you determine has everlasting consequences and you will live with your answer, either rejoicing with God in his presence forever or suffering in his absence permanently. And there is no third option Be informed. Do the investigation yourself. Don't allow a college professor or a beer-drinking buddy to influence a decision of this magnitude. So many kids are growing up in the world now. Secular teachers are filling their heads. These professors who purport themselves to be all-knowing are mocking God and saying there is no God. You go to 90% of the universities and colleges, that's what they learn, that's what they teach, that's what they believe. Do not allow a professor to make your decision of where you'll spend eternity. It's worth you investigating it. Don't allow some, somebody of yours to say, well, you know, there is no God. Don't worry about it, man. Just have as much fun in this life as you can. You only get one shot, only one go around. Don't listen to him. You make the choice of where you'll spend eternity. This is too important to allow somebody else to choose for you. Many in the crowd believed in Jesus. It was based on them seeing miracles that he had performed, but at least it was a beginning of their faith. Nicodemus began at the same point that they're at, and eventually he would confess faith in Christ openly. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring, these things concerning Jesus and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, these are the officers. These are the enforcers uh, of the Pharisees, uh, not unlike maybe secret police or something. And they sent them out and said, go get this guy off the street. He's going to cause an insurrection. He's going to cause more people to put their faith in him. Go get him. Bring him off the streets. Arrest him. Verse 33, then Jesus said to them, the crowd and and these guys, these secret police guys, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Many of, when Rome came, many of the Jews were dispersed across the, the Greek world. Is he going to go teach to them? What is this thing that he said? 
you shall seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. What does that, what's that mean? We've witnessed the first two parts in this three-part play at the Feast of Tabernacles. Part one, before the feast, we saw the doubting brothers kind of mock Jesus. Part number two, during the feast, we saw the three quarreling groups. Now part three, at the end of the feast, we see the division by opinion. The division by opinion. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Your answer places you in one of these two groups, believers or rejectors. Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, this is a very special moment in the seven day, the week long celebration, the climax of the entire week is the great, what they call the great day. It was an event when the priest would now on the final day, march around the altar seven times, singing Psalm 118.25. That's what they would do on the final day. They would sing, and the crowd would cheer, cheer, yes, bring us prosperity, God. After this march, the priests would make one final draw of water from the pool of Bethesda. They would go down, and they would fill their water pots up, and they would bring them back down, and they would do that. They'd all stand their water pots up, and at the same time, they would dump them out at the altar and the water would create like a river flowing. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.